yeah, we are starting a brand new sermon series called Honest Advent, and uh, so excited for this. Uh, by the way, uh, all of these decorations were done by our creative team, so can we give them a big round of applause? Um, you can't buy this anywhere. This is, it's not like they, they, they bought this. this is, uh, they hand-built this all from scratch, so it's amazing. I know. It's crazy. Um, so if you try to go look for these things online, uh, you'll never find them. Um, but, um, but yeah, we're so grateful. If you'd like to join the creative team, by the way, this is kind of the, some of the stuff that they do. They made our sermon bumper. Uh, they did some of the decor here on stage and out there, as, as you're seeing. Um, but so if you'd like to join, you can go ahead and contact uh, Pastor Kenny. He would love to have you guys on the creative team. Uh, but we are starting a brand new sermon series in uh, Advent. And if you're unfamiliar with Advent, it's the four weeks leading up to Christmas. It's preceding Christmas. And it's really a time for the church to look back uh, at the birth of Jesus, uh, but at the same time to look forward, to cast ourselves into the future and to say, Christ is going to come back again, and we need to prepare ourselves for that. And looking back and looking forward really helps us in the present. It really helps us deal with the evil, the suffering, and the death that we see all around us and really provide us things like love, joy, hope, and peace. And these are the things that we want to fill our bodies with, fill our minds and our hearts with uh, during this Christmas season, even though we live in such a chaotic and distracted world today. Uh, and so during these next uh, four weeks, we'll be looking at the uh, life of Jesus uh, through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be going verse by verse through the first two chapters of the book of Matthew and really studying Jesus' life. And what you'll notice there is that Jesus is not born into this nice, cuddly time. It's not a peaceful time. It's a time filled with suffering, evil, and death. Uh, and throughout the narrative, what we'll see is that Jesus uh, is honest about his upbringing. He's honest about where he was, uh, that, he was try that he was at one point hunted and, and was, uh, you know, trying to be killed, and that uh, he, he had wise men come and visit him. He had uh, really dubious people in his genealogy, as we'll look at today. And so for us, I know, especially in our culture, we tend to think of that song, uh, Deck the Halls, right? There's that famous line, uh, Deck the Halls, and the famous line goes like this, Tis the season to be jolly, fa-la-la-la-la, la-la-la-la. And uh, we think Christmas, we wipe a smile on our faces, we be joyful. Um, but really, I think uh, what Scripture tells us to do is to be honest, to be real with ourselves, is to really bring before God all the things that burden us, all the evil, the suffering, and death that we see in our world, in our lives, and to bring it before Christ, and to bring it before each other as a church, and to really be a church that looks forward to the second coming of Christ once again. And so uh, with that said, we're going to be starting off with Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 17, probably the boringest part of the Gospel of Matthew, but I think uh, there's a lot there for us. By the way, if you are pregnant and you're looking for names, this is a great place to look. There are tons and tons and tons of names for you. Uh, so at this time, if you're able, would you rise as we read God's Word together? Uh, I'm re reading from the English Standard Version, and uh, we'll read from verse 1 to verse 17. Hopefully I can get through all these names, so pray for me. <laughs> This is the reading of God's word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, 
and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Nathan, and Nathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these names. Wow. Oh God, we're so grateful that Jesus Christ fulfilled prophecy. We're so grateful that Jesus Christ came. We're so grateful that he died on a cross, Lord, and we pray that today we would lift him on high, that we would exalt him, that, and that we'd worship him not only in our lives, but in our hearts. God, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Lots and lots of names. Uh, this was a really tough sermon for me, to be honest with you, uh, to prepare because there was just so many names. Um, but uh, we have three points as we normally do. The first point is who is the gospel? Uh, the second point is uh, what is the gospel? And then our final point will be the gospel of grace. Okay, so who is the gospel? What is the gospel? And the gospel of grace. Um, you know, I, I love ministry. My wife actually asked me this week, you know, did you really mean what you said? in that sermon where you said you really love ministry. She's like, really, what's your dream job, Eric? And I said, no, really, ministry is my dream job. I'm doing it right now. Uh, and yet, uh, it was not always so. There was a time, a season in my life where I burned out really badly. Uh, I remember I, uh, our church had three services, uh, one at 10, 12, and 5 p.m. I was the welcoming pastor as well as a setup crew. Uh, and so there was like me and two other guys, and we had to set up the children's ministry, we had to set up uh, the worship uh, team stuff. We had to set up the decor, the welcoming tables, everything. And so I'd get to church at 6 a.m. I wouldn't leave till about 8.30 p.m. Uh, I wouldn't get home till after having dinner with some of the team members till about 10. And I did this for years. Uh, not only that, but I led two community groups, one on Tuesday nights and then one on Thursday nights. I taught a Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, and then all the while, I had the college ministry to take care of, especially on Friday nights. That was our time. And so all this to say, I was doing lots of ministry. Meanwhile, I was full-time in seminary. I took full-time classes, and I was doing all of this. And uh, during that season of whatever, I think it was like two years or so, I burned out really badly. Um, it was a season where I, I became very cynical. I became very bitter. Uh, I, I didn't like meeting people. I didn't like talking to people. I had to force myself to do these things. Um, I was getting cynical about God, about the church. I was getting bitter all around. In addition, vacations or time off didn't really help me. I would go on these vacations or I'd take time away with friends, and I'd feel okay at the time, but when I came back, I never felt rested. I always felt like there was always more. There was always more resting to do, and yet rest never fulfilled me. Uh, I would try to take up different hobbies, and these different hobbies never fulfilled me. Nothing ever fulfilled me. I just felt dry. I felt unrested. I felt like I was always tired and, and cynical and bitter. And I'm mentioning this because I think for many of us, we're in this season of burnout. I think we're going through a massive societal burnout, and this is something I told our CG leaders. Um, as, a, as a whole nation, as a whole uh, uh, society, I think we're all burning out. And I think starting from two years ago, March 2020, or yeah, 2020, which is when COVID began. We're now in December 2021, almost two years now. We've been living with this thing called COVID, and a lot of us are thinking, when is this going to end? 
We just heard on the news that there's this new variant running around and that South Korea might be shutting down again. And we're thinking, when is this thing ever going to end? Uh, Not only has COVID injected death and fear into our society, but we as human beings, although we're great at adapting, we've had to adapt so many ways. Our jobs have changed, right? Where we work, how we work, what times we work. Because you take work home now, you can work at 1 a.m., you can work at 2 a.m., it doesn't matter. Our schedules are constantly changing. Our kids' schools and educations are constantly changing. We were online, we were offline, now we're back online, now we're offline. And then if your kid's class gets COVID, then the whole thing shuts down for 14 days, and then you have nowhere to go for 14 days. Your, your schedules are constantly changing. And then we're on standby constantly as a society. When's the next thing coming up? Are we going to uh, add more layers to this protection in our society? And we're always waiting for these changes. And I think with the fear and the death along with the changes, uh, all of these things are causing us as a society to burn out. In addition, we have shortages in our workforce, right? A lot of you right now in your workplaces are probably picking up slack for other people because you just don't have enough employees right now and not, not enough workers. Uh, in addition, we have shortages in our supply chain. I just went to Costco, tried to buy whole milk. There's no whole milk. It's crazy. We have massive inflation. Crime is high. Global warming seems to be out of control. We're experiencing all these things, and we're like, Lord, when is it going to end? Like, I don't know how much more I can take of this. Like, I don't know how much longer I can take of all of this stuff that's happening, and we're exhausted, and we're burned out. And like I said, I went to Costco this week, and I noticed this in the air on Monday, right before Thanksgiving. I went into Costco, and I could feel people's anger. They were, like, lining up. People were, like, cutting people off in line, and I could feel everyone's anger, exhaustion, cynicism in the air. And all just to say, when are we going to get back to normal? When will this craziness end? When can we fully escape the changes and the pandemic and all this burnout that we're experiencing? And I'm mentioning this again because in the book of Matthew, this is how the gospel opens for us. This is the first book of the New Testament, and the book prior to this is the book of Malachi. And in the book of Malachi, what are the Jews doing? The Jews are waiting. They're waiting for their oppression to be over. They're waiting for Jesus to come and save them. They're waiting for God to come and save them, and they've been waiting. In fact, the Jewish people had been waiting not for two years. They've been waiting for 750 years. It started with the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then now the Romans. And they've been waiting for God to set them free from all of this stuff. They've been living in exile. They don't really have a temple. They, they started building these things called synagogues because they couldn't go and worship at their temple. They've been waiting for God to come and save them. And yet in the midst of this, Matthew opens up his gospel. Good news is what gospel means. He opens up his gospel not by telling us, hey, guess what, Jews? Uh, God is going to come and end Roman occupation. He's going to come and solve all your problems, friends. No, how does Matthew open up his gospel? Look at verse 1 there. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He doesn't tell us about a cure to our circumstances. He tells us about a person. He says, look, there's Jesus Christ. He's come. Have hope. Have joy. Have peace. Have love. Have these things because Jesus Christ is here. And so many of us want God to come into our lives to change our external circumstances. And yet what the gospel and what the church has to offer today is not a change in circumstances. And this is why the prosperity gospel, in my opinion, is so insidious. 
Because what the prosperity gospel essentially says is, look, God is going to come and change your circumstances. He's going to save you from your circumstances. He's going to give you health, wealth, and prosperity. And yet that's not what the gospel of Matthew says. The gospel of Matthew says, look, Jesus Christ is here. The church doesn't offer a change of circumstance. The church doesn't even offer good advice. What the church has to offer is Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. I'm going to take a little bit tangent, but I'll bring it full circle. Do you guys remember how the book of Genesis opens? Right? In the beginning, God. The book of Genesis, the whole Bible begins with God. God was in the beginning. It's all centered upon God. And in fact, if you look <clears throat> at the original Hebrew, the book of Genesis was not called Genesis in Hebrew. It was called Bereshit. That's not a curse word, by the way. It's, it means in the beginning in Hebrew. It's literally the first uh, phrase in the book of Genesis is what the book was named. And yet, after Alexander the Great took over, after he conquered the known world, they began calling it Genesis because Greek became the, the sort of the world language. And uh, 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 in Greek, uh, they, they started calling it Genesis, which means the beginnings or the origins of. And I'm saying this because if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, right, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, that word genealogy, I want you to underline it. It's the word for Genesis. It's the Greek word Genesis. It's the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David. In other words, what it's saying is this. The gospel is the book about the beginnings of Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's a book. It's the new creation. It's the new creation and the beginnings of it are surrounding Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not about God coming to change your circumstances. The gospel is not even about a set of rules that you have to obey. The gospel, I dare say, is not even about the forgiveness of sins. I know I talk about the forgiveness of sins every week, Jesus' death on the cross, and yet I would say that's not even the center of the gospel. It is the gospel, but it's not the center, the core of it. The center core of the gospel is Jesus. The reason why the forgiveness of sins matters is because it gets us to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Listen to what John Piper says. He wrote a book called God is the Gospel. Listen to what John Piper says. He says, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there. We'll not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. Let me ask you this. Why do you want salvation? Why do you want the forgiveness of sins? Is it just so that you can have un, like pleasurable stuff in heaven, or is it because you want God himself? Do you want Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Christ all the things that you want and more? Uh, you know, this Thanksgiving, we opened up our home to uh, people who didn't have uh, a place to go for Thanksgiving, and during that time, I started telling them stories about how my wife and I first met, and I started telling them about how I would uh, sort of set up all of these different events uh, to just hang out with my wife, because I didn't want to tell her I liked her yet, and so I would just try to plan these group hangouts. Uh, but then I would always, of course, invite my wife, uh, or at the time she wasn't my wife, but, you know, I was just interested in her, and I'd invite her out. So, for example, I was teaching a class on 2 Corinthians, and uh, after every class, I would ask the class, hey, you guys want to go out uh, for coffee and pumpkin pie? There was a cafe nearby called Earth Cafe, and I would tell them, hey, do you guys want to go grab pumpkin pie? It's delicious pumpkin pie at Earth Cafe. Uh, and, and sometimes Jess would say yes, and sometimes she'd say no. Uh, and yet, when, when, when she said uh, no, I was always depressed. I was like, oh, gosh, I planned this event. Now I've got to spend time with these people, and <laughs> let me just go home. And, 
But I was like, oh, I'll eat this pumpkin pie and whatnot. Uh, but when she would say yes and when she'd come, I'd actually be so excited. I'd be so excited. Just her presence being there just excited me. Just to be able to talk with her, just to be able to spend time with her uh, would excite me so much. I would get really giddy, in fact, um, because she would just be there. And in the same way, let me ask you this. Do you love Christ and do you just savor his presence? Like Christ, we just sang about this. His presence is here with us right now. And is this fact that his mere presence excite you? Does the fact that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you give you joy just because he's here with us? Right? Jesus Christ is called Emmanuel, God with us. Does that excite you? Does that bring you pleasure? Does that bring you joy? Or are you just a Christian? Do you just enjoy the gospel because it's the forgiveness of sins because you get a ticket to heaven and that's all it's about? Look, I'm not, look, I, I want to try to phrase this a little bit differently, but, um, but don't take it as theological truth because I'm just giving you an example, okay? But, but look, let me, let me put it a different way, right? If you don't love Jesus Christ, if you don't love Jesus Christ, heaven will actually be a hell for you. You see what I'm saying there? If you don't love and savor Jesus Christ, heaven is going to be hell for you. Because I'm telling you, what heaven's going to be like is Jesus Christ. That's all it's going to be. And if you don't love him, it's going to become a hell for you. Um, look, if you, if you love chocolate cake and you go into a room full of chocolate cake, you're going to love that room. But if you hate chocolate cake and you go into a room full of chocolate cake, that's hell for you. And if you don't love Jesus Christ, if you don't savor Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, you won't even want to go to heaven. You won't want to be there because all there will be in heaven is the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look, in addition, look, look further on with me, okay? In verse 17, look what it says, okay? So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. It's interesting, right? Matthew points out 14, 14, 14. We have to do a little math here, okay? Um, what is 14, right? 14 is two sevens. Two sevens, right? It's cut in half, two sevens. So what is he saying? It's seven, 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 seven. That's six sevens in a row, okay? And what, it's, what I think is happening here, right? There's many things that are happening with this number thing, and a lot of scholars have different things, but I think there's multiple things happening. We'll talk about one here now. But one of the things that's happening is if you look, Jesus Christ is the beginning of the seventh iteration of the seven times. You see that? Out of, the seven, out of the seven generations, he's the seventh in line. He's the first of the seven. Meaning this, right? He's the Sabbath. He is the rest that you need. He is the thing that you need in order to rest. He's the fulfillment. He's the thing. He's the crux. He's the pinnacle of it, of it all. He's the climax of it all. And so if we want rest, right? If we want rest for our weary souls, what I believe the book of Matthew is saying is we find it in Christ. If we want to, if we want to, you know, get over this burnout. If we want to be able to find rest, true rest, it's not a vacation. It's not simply watching Netflix. It's by finding our rest in Christ. And yet, let me ask you this, right? We skip out on church. We skip out on our devotionals. We skip out on time with our community groups. We skip out on these spiritual disciplines that will get us closer to Jesus. And yet, this is what our souls need. We try to fill up our lives with more vacations, which are not bad. I'm not against vacations. I love vacations. We try to fill up, our, fill up our lives with Netflix. Nothing against Netflix. I love Netflix myself. But I mention this because we're trying to fill up our lives with these things to find rest when all the while Jesus Christ is saying, look, I'm a person. Have a relationship with me. This is what your souls need to find rest. Uh, Reed Hastings, he's the CEO of Netflix, and it was interesting. He, he talks about this. He says um, that, his, that the competition for Netflix, 
I don't know if this is true or not, but if you work for Netflix, you know, you can tell me if I'm uh, right or wrong about this. But he says this, their competition is not Hulu. Netflix's competition is not Hulu. It's not Amazon Prime Video. Uh, it's not uh, Disney Plus. It's not none of these other carriers. Reed Hastings says their competition is sleep. Listen to what he says. He says it in a, in a Newsweek article. He says, you get a show or movie you're really dying to watch, and you end up staying up late at night, so we actually compete with sleep, Hastings said, adding triumphantly, and we're winning. We think Netflix is going to provide us rest, and what Netflix actually does is it actually keeps us later and later up into the night so that we don't actually get rest. And you see, this is what happens to us physically with Netflix, I believe, happens to us spiritually as well. We think Netflix is providing us rest. We think these vacations are providing us rest, but it's really distracting us from the real thing that provides us rest, which is spiritual sleep with Christ. What we really need is Christ. What we really need is to pour our hearts and our souls into worship of Christ. And to really exalt him and to glorify him, but we're not. So let's move into our second point. What is the gospel? Okay, so Matthew begins with the gospel, which is Jesus Christ himself, the person of Jesus. And then he begins to tell us, he gives us hints about who this Jesus will be by sharing with us a story through his genealogy. Uh, it, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and at the beginning of these podcasts, what they'll do is they'll share the credentials or the resume of the guest of the podcast. So if it's a leadership podcast, they'll share all the reasons why you should listen to this person because they have all this leadership experience in these different areas. Or if you listen to a psychological podcast or a sociological po uh, podcast, they'll list out all the credentials for why you should listen to them because they're experts in this area. And in the same way, this is what the genealogy is doing. It's telling us a story for why it is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, why it is that he is the one that we've been waiting to come, but it's also telling us a story of something else. It's telling us the story of why he is the king of kings and the lord of lords, why he's in control of all things. So if you notice, right, in order for Matthew to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, all he has to do is show us that he's from Abraham and from David. That's all he has to show us. But if you look at the genealogy, it's filled with all of these crazy kings, like these, these like crazy in a good way, really, really outstanding kings. First, you have King David, the first and the greatest of all the kings. And then you have Jehoshaphat. You have Uzziah, Hezekiah, and Josiah, and to us as modern readers, we think nothing of this. And yet Jewish readers, which is what this book was written to, was written to a primarily Jewish audience, would have looked at that and been like, holy smokes, those are the people that are in this genealogy. Wow, crazy. Uzziah, Hezekiah, these guys were rock stars. These guys were amazing, amazing kings. During their time, uh, there was worship of Yahweh. There was economic prosperity. There was peace throughout all the land. The kingdom of Israel was expanding. It was a great time to be alive. He has these people in his genealogy. Wonderful. He must be a great king. Because in those days, they didn't look at accomplishments. They didn't look at your education. What they looked at was your family lineage. That's how you proved your credential was your family lineage, and he has all these rock stars. Now, let's go back to these 14 names, okay, because this is kind of the icing on the cake, right? Some scholars believe that this is a form of what they call gematria, which is a way of assigning numerical uh, value to particular letters of the Hebrew alphabet uh, and then actually uh, uh, pointing to some kind of sign or symbolism for it. So what some scholars think is happening here is the number 14 is important because if you look at the name of King David, King David's name is D-W-D in the Hebrew. There's no vowels in David's name. Uh, in Hebrew language, there's no vowels. There's just consonants. So David's name is D-W-D. They didn't have a V. They, uh, they call him David, right? And it's sort of like a W-V sort of thing. Uh, but 
DWD, D, the numerical value that's assigned to D is 4. The numerical value that's assigned to W is 6. So you have 4 plus 6, what is that, 10? And then you add another 4 at the end, that's 14. And so what they're saying is if you look at all the great, if you look at all of the, the big historical events of Israel's time, from Abraham to David, from David to the deportation of Babylon, and then from Babylon to Jesus Christ, you have 14, 14, 14. He's saying that Jesus Christ is the greatest of all these kings. That he's the best. That he's the king of kings. That he's the Lord of lords. That he's the most supreme of all the kings. And this king will not only come to conquer the Romans. In fact, he's not even going to conquer the Romans. But what he is going to come and conquer is the thing that we've all been wanting our king to come and conquer. Which is evil, death, and suffering. He isn't just going to come and conquer these little guys, Romans. Anybody could do that. He's going to come and conquer something that's like no one has ever been able to conquer. Evil, suffering, and death itself. This is what this king has come to conquer. You know, Billy Graham, he gave a TED Talk in 1998. Crazy. I didn't even know TED Talks were around um, in 1998. But it was after this long technological conference, and he gave the final closing speech of this TED Talk, of this conference. And in this, in this talk, what he says is this. He says, look, the most brilliant minds have come up with crazy technological advances. And he says this, but the only thing that we as humans have not been able to cure is evil suffering and death doesn't matter how smart we've become doesn't matter how technologically advanced we've become we've never been able to solve the problem of evil death and suffering and so listen to what he says he says the introduction of iron in some ways had an impact a little bit like the microchip has had on our generation and king david found that there were many problems that technology could not solve there were many problems still left and they're still with us and you haven't solved them and i haven't heard anybody here speak to that how do we solve these three problems that I like to mention, which he goes on to say are evil, suffering, and death? No one's been able to solve this problem. And in my opinion, this is why we are so burned out. It's because what COVID has shown us is that we're not in control. We've never been in control of evil, suffering, and death. This is, this is what all we've been seeing throughout this time is evil, suffering, and death. We're not in control of it. We're realizing we're not in control. This thing has its way with us. We, have no, we can't conquer it, and so therefore we're burning out. We don't have control. We don't have peace. We have this anxiety in our hearts constantly stirring because we are not in control. Look at what Billy Graham goes on to say about evil. We'll take this one by one, evil, suffering, and death, okay? He says, why do we have these wars in every generation? and in every part of the world, and revolutions. We can't get along with other people, even in our own families. We find ourselves in the paralyzing grip of self-destructive habits we can't break. Racism and injustice and violence sweep our world, bringing a tragic harvest of heartache and death. Even the most sophisticated among us seem powerless to break this cycle. I would like to see Oracle take up that, or some other technological geniuses work on this. How do we change man? so that he doesn't lie and cheat, and our newspapers are not filled with stories of fraud in business or labor or athletics or whatever. Let me put it like this, right? Pastor Clara put me onto this um, uh, before she, she gave birth, but she, she, I, I didn't believe her at first, but apparently, and I looked this up, apparently Jeff Bezos sent William Shatner to outer space. Did you guys know about this? This is crazy. William Shatner played James T. Kirk in the original Star Trek. Do you know how old William Shatner is? I didn't know. William Shatner is 90 years old. Jeff Bezos sent this man to outer space. This is how technologically advanced we've become, and yet we cannot get a Republican to love a Democrat, and we cannot get a Democrat to love a Republican. We've been able to solve um, shooting a man into outer space, and yet we cannot love our kids. 
Isn't that crazy? Like we can't even love, like the homeless person, we can't even love people to our left and to our right, and yet we've sent the man to outer space. Why? Because evil is still rampant everywhere we go, and it's uncontrollable. We can't cure it. Look, let's turn our attention to suffering. We have, de- we have devised so many instruments that distract us or to pull us away from suffering. I just named a few, right? Netflix, great distraction. We've had medications, marijuana, alcohol, drugs. We've invented crazy amounts of things that take us away from suffering, and yet I would say suffering is on an all-time high. We've not been able to cure this. In fact, I would say that we're suffering more than ever, which is why suicide rates are sky high. We have more technology, more distractions, more escapes than ever before, and more and more people are killing themselves. I don't understand this. We haven't been able to cure this. And finally, look at death. This is the one thing we all have in common. Look at what Billy Graham goes on to say. He said, I spoke some time ago to a joint session of Congress last year, and we were meeting in that room, the statue room. About 300 of them were there. And I said, there's one thing we all have in common in this room. All of us together, whether Republican or Democrat or whoever, I said, we're all going to die. And we have that in common. And with all these great men of the past that are staring down at us, and it's often difficult for young people to understand that, it's difficult for them to understand that, we're, that, that they're going to die. We, we haven't cured this. The greatest kings, the greatest technological minds have tried to solve this, and we have not been able to cure death itself. And, and as I mentioned before, I believe COVID woke us up as a nation, as a society. It's like when you get that cold water and you splash it on somebody's face and they wake up. We, we were woken up again. We were, we were in a time of peace and prosperity and we thought, man, we we're in control. We have everything figured out. And COVID came and it totally wiped us out. We were not ready for it. And we realized, my goodness, evil, death, and suffering are still with us. They're inescapable. No one can save us from this. And yet there is a king. Matthew tells us there's a king. There is a person who can cure all these things. There is a person who is above all these things. There is a person who has come, who will come. He will come again to solve all of these things and more. He will put evil, suffering, and death under his foot, and he will crush it once and for all. His name is Jesus Christ, and he's the king above all kings. He's the name above all names, and his name is beautiful because of this. Because he's the only one, friends, that can solve these problems. He's the only one that can take away evil, death, and suffering from us. He's the only one through his death and through his servant humility on the cross, friends. He takes these things and he removes it from our midst. Friends, and this is why this Christmas we can have hope. This is why we can have joy. This is why we can have love and all of these things and more because of Jesus Christ. Let's move on to our third and final point, the gospel of grace. Here's the final observation about Jesus' genealogy. There are women. It's crazy. Um, Back in those days, genealogy, sometimes there were women, but there weren't this many women. Sometimes there were women, but they weren't of this kind of reputation. Sometimes there were women, but again, not to this degree of women in a genealogy. And if you read, one of the things Jewish readers would have, would have stood out right to them is the fact that there are all these women, and there are all these women who don't have a good reputation who were known for being either Gentiles, which are foreigners, or they were women who committed adultery or had some kind of sexual uh, promiscuity in their lives. And so you have to think, right, Jesus Christ, Matthew is trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the king, so why would he share this horrendous information about Jesus? Why not hide this? 
Why not tuck it away, right? And to just say like, hey, okay, these women don't exist. We're not going to talk about them. They're part of Jesus' past. And he, yet he shares them open and wide. It's like this. If I were, let's just say I were, uh, you know, uh, uh, applying for the lead pastor role, right? And I had all the church members come over to my house one day, right? And you guys were looking at my life and you guys come into my home. And all of a sudden you open up the door and the first thing you smell is cigarette smoke. It just fills my house, right? And you walk in a little bit deeper, you meet my wife, my kids, and then all of a sudden you see on the couch, you see prostitutes and, and drug dealers sitting on my couch, smoking cigarettes, drinking beer, having a great time, having a blast. That wouldn't be really good for me, would it? If I'm applying for something. And this is sort of what Jesus, what's happening here. Is you read this credentials and you're like, why? Why do we include these kinds of people? They're, they're not helping you, Jesus. And yet here's why I think Jesus and Matthew include this. It's because this gospel that we're talking about is for everyone. It is for everyone. By naming the lowest of the low of society, at that time it was women who were foreign women who had, you know, kind of sexual promiscuity in there. By naming these women, he's saying, look, everyone, everyone, the gospel is for everyone. This salvation is for everyone. I'm a king for everyone. No one is excluded. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter uh, if you were the worst of criminals. It's not based on your works. It's not based on your merit. It's not based on what you've done. It's based on what the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will do for you. Look, if you think you're not worthy of, of the gospel, think again. If you think you've done things in your life that, you, that make you unworthy of the love of Jesus Christ, think again, friends. You are wor you're not worthy, but Jesus Christ died for you. And because he died for you on the cross, because of his works on the cross, you are made worthy. Because of his righteousness, he gave it to you. And because of that, you can stand before the king of kings, the Lord of lords, unstained. You are a sinner, and yet you're a saint. Look, my pastor told me this once, and I, I thought it was strange, and I think I mentioned it before in a sermon once. But he said this. He said, he was talking to a group of us men. He said, look, man, if you ever watch pornography, right, and you're, you just finished watching pornography, he says, I want you to do your devotionals right after. He's like, he's like, if you're drunk, I want you to do your devotionals while you're drunk. If you're high on weed, he's like, I want you to do your devotionals while you're high on weed. Why? Because you're not saved by your works. Your relationship with Christ is not based on your merits. He says, look, this is what your soul needs at this moment is your devotionals, is your time with Jesus. Because during that time, yes, you will be filled with shame, but you'll also meet the love of Christ. You'll meet the grace of Christ. This is how powerful the gospel is, friends. It's not based on our works. And now I'm not saying go on and do those kinds of things, right? But I'm saying this is how powerful the gospel is. The gospel is so powerful that it doesn't require our works, our merits. It's based solely on the work of Jesus Christ. And look, here's the last and final, final observation of this, okay? If you look there at verses 12 to 16, a lot of scholars don't know a lot of these names. Uh, if you look there, right, we know Sheatil, we know Zerubbabel. But we don't know like Zadok or Achim or Eliud. We don't know some of these names. Uh, in fact, they're, they're kind of puzzled as to who these people actually are. And yet for me, when I read this, what I think of this is, is this. Look, some of these names are recorded in our Bibles forever and ever. Amen. When we're in heaven, we will have our Bibles and it will be in our Bibles for all of eternity. These people's names will be remembered. They're a part of Jesus' genealogy. They're a part of his family. And what this tells me is this. Jesus Christ knows your name. You're a part of his family. Your name belongs here as well. You are part of Jesus Christ's family going forward because, because of Jesus Christ's work on the cross. You are part of his family. Your name is written in the book of life. And Jesus knows your name. And this is a powerful piece of news for each and every single one of us. 
Um, I'll just end with this final illustration, but I remember a while ago, um, there was this really well-known pastor in Los Angeles. Uh, he was sort of well-known in the Korean-American community, and um, I had met him once, and I, uh, I remember just shaking hands with him, introducing myself. I was kind of nervous meeting him. Uh, he's a professor. He's a church pastor. He's an author. He's sort of all these things, and I was sort of really, really impressed by him, had a lot of respect for him, and I met him this one time. I shook his hand. He asked me what my name is. He asked me my ministry. And I shared all these things. I was really nervous uh, talking to him. And then I think like two years go by, and I see him again at this conference, this pastor's conference that we all go to. And, uh, you know, I was, I was speaking to one of my pastor friends, and I was like, oh, like I met, I met him a while ago. He probably doesn't remember who I am. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just try to go up and introduce myself. I walked past him, and I kid you not, he remembered my name. He was like, hey, Eric. And I was like, oh, hey. I pretended to just kind of not notice that he was there, but of course I knew he was there because I really respected him. But he said, hey, Eric. And I turned, I was like, oh, hey. And he started, he was like, hey, how's ministry going? Last time I met you, you were doing college ministry. How's that going? And I I kid you not, I mean, that whole day, I felt so much more happier. I don't know why. I had a little skip in my step. I had a little, uh, you know, know, I I was just happier that day just because he knew my name, because he knew some things about me. And you think about this, and you think about who Jesus Christ is, the creator of the Adam, the one who formed the land of the sea, the one who created every living creature, the one who was never made, the one who will never pass away, the one who always was and is and will come. He knows your name. He knows every detail of your life. He knows more about you than you know yourself. And this Jesus came and he died for you. And he knows your name. And he loves you. And friends, this is why we can exalt him. This is why we can praise him, not only because of who he is, but because of what he's done and who he will come and will be for all of us. And friends, this Jesus Christ knows your name and he loves you. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I know that for many of us right now, our lives are not going according to our will. Lord, we had plans for 2020. We had plans for 2021. We had plans to go vacation, to go to other countries, to go and get other jobs or to do things with our kids. But we had all these plans, Lord, and our plans are not going according to their plan. And yet, Lord, so many of us, including myself, are frustrated. We're tired, Lord. And yet we have to remember, Lord, that you've been in control of all of time and space. You've been in control of all of history, Lord. And yet, Lord, you've been setting up things one by one just for us, Lord, so you would be glorified and so that, Lord, you've been working for our good. And, Lord, we pray now that you would help us now to recognize that, Lord, that even though our plans are not being done, Lord, your plans are being done. And because your plans are being done, Lord, we can worship and glorify you, Lord. And, Lord, we pray, God, that during this Christmas season, Lord, even though we're surrounded by evil, death, and suffering. Lord, we pray once again, Lord, that you would give us hope, that you would give us love, joy, and peace during this season, Lord, not because you've changed our circumstances, but because, Lord, we know that you have come and you will come again to restore all things to you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.